And in this episode, we're going to be looking at uh, financial dependency in terms of the Section 4 disregard and also uh, the difficult area of those that are wealth creators, people who earn more than their salaries and how you deal with those cases. You're listening to the Civil Lawcast, a regular series on issues of interest and developments in civil law brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers and I'm here with Romilly Cummerson, also of 39 Essex Chambers, for this episode of Civil Lawcast. We're dealing with Fatal Accident Act claims and on the previous episode we spoke about um, multipliers and multiplicands, dependency and who could be a dependent. And in this episode of Financial Dependency, we shall be looking at the section for disregard and also at the issues of wealth creators. Hello, Romilly. Hello. Now, you, we can deal, starting off with Section 4, um, we can deal with Section 4 pretty quickly, really, can't we? Yes. Section 4 requires the court to disregard any benefits that have accrued or will or may accrue to any person um, as a result of the death. You've got to disregard them all. Um, case of Piddock and Easter Scottish Omnibus, that dealt with a widow's pension that had to be disregarded when a lost pension claim was made. Um and then we have the case of Arnup and White, which shows that it also uh, applies to any benefits in kind. So in that case, the claimant's husband had been killed in the course of his employment. He'd re- she'd received a payment from the employer under a death in service benefit scheme and also a further payment from the employee benefit trust. And at first instance, the judge held that both of those payments had accrued as a result of decisions made by the employer and by the trustees of the employee benefit scheme and were not um, payments made as a result of the husband's death. And therefore, Section 4 didn't apply. But on appeal, um, the Court of Appeal found that that judge had been incorrect and that the wording of Section 4 is wide enough to cover benefits in kind, which accrue as a result of the death. And the court was Keynes emphasised that it had been the clear intention of Parliament to disregard all benefits coming to dependents as a result of death. And we have to contrast that with the compensatory principles that are applied in tort. It really is a departure from ordinary tortious principles that would apply in most personal injury cases. Um, it can lead to, I hesitate to use the word windfall when someone's died because it doesn't seem, doesn't seem very sensitive, but it, I mean, it, it can lead to quite a significant financial advantage to some claimants. And nevertheless, the court's um, very keen to um, support and enforce it. So you can contrast it with the compensatory principles in a personal injury claim, uh, particularly, for example, with something like a pension claim um, that... Uh, in personal injury, you can only set a pension against a pension, and there are quite there are quite complicated rules about whether the pension was something you'd invested in and were entitled to keep, or something that had been given to you by an employer and therefore should be uh, set against a future pension claim, and so on and so forth. All of that's out of the window in fatal accident. Act claims. Um, if there's a pension that arises as a result of the deceased, um, you get to keep it entirely. Um, and again. Uh, you can see very clear examples of that um, in um, cases involving um, armed forces where there's a, a significant amount of um, care provided to survivors um, because obviously it's a very hazardous occupation um, and, and, and there are many uh, deceased service uh, people where there's no tortious claim at all and um, the way in which that um, employment situation works is that there's often a, a, a significant financial 
um, support provided to those that are left behind. Whatever that may be, it's utterly disregarded in the instance of a section four when you have a tortious claim and therefore you can have the survivor claiming a full dependency on both the earnings and the pension that would have accrued to that um, service personnel uh, regardless of the fact that they have already received a quantity of money or will continue to receive a quantity of money. And those kind of distinctions uh, led to Lord Sumption making um, one of his um, uh, trenchant comments, I think it would be fair to say, um, in Cox and Ergo, in 2014, when he uh, he was actually looking at the Section 3, a prospect of remarriage, um, and Section 4 disregard as saying they mark a departure from ordinary principles of assessment in English law, which can fairly be described as anomalous. I don't think anyone could disagree with that. Um, uh, but of course, for those of us that um, are applying rather than making the law, um, again, we go back to the fact that it is because under common law, there is no claim for death at all. Um, um, it is only um, living living people that can make claims, and therefore, but for the, the 76 Act, uh, there would be uh, a, a no claim. It is therefore a creature of statute, and, and I think it is just marks how unusual it is for us um, in England and Wales, in our common law civil jurisdiction, when we're used to having common law, uh, which is judicially, um, judicially moves to reflect changes in society. And you can see how things change and adapt over time, within an arc of, of, of parliamentary guidance, um, unlike the stricture that the Fatal Accident Act um, provides for us uh, in this instance. Well, I think we might finally have to move on to wealth creators. Go, Romilly, tell us all about it. Well, we've looked at how the court calculates loss of dependency in a relatively straightforward case of a deceased who earns a salary. Um, but we now need to look at what happens... What is the court's approach to wealth creators? So those people whose contribution to family finances goes beyond a salary. Um, and that's, of course, of particular importance in the case of those who are perhaps the driving force or what might be said to be the prime mover behind a family business that could be the source of income for the whole family. So how do we value that dependency? So um, one example of that is the case of CAPE distribution um, and O'Clocklin. In that case, the deceased ran a property portfolio. Um, and when he died, his widow inherited the properties and she couldn't manage them. So she sold some of them and lived off the income. And the question was, had she suffered a loss of dependency because she'd inherited all of the properties? So had she suffered a loss at all? And if so, how should it be calculated? The defendant, of course, argued there was no loss because she had all the capital assets of the business and could just continue um, to live off the income. But she argued that, in fact, what she'd really lost was her husband's flair and experience and his entrepreneurial skills and the financial benefits that he would have brought to the family as a result of those skills um, until he was at least age 60. The judge approached the assessment by calculating the cost of employing a manager to, repay, to replace his business flair. And the monies that were received as a result of selling business assets were disregarded. Um, the defendant appealed and the Court of Appeal approved the first instance judge's approach and analysis. So again, taking care in that case to note that there was no prescribed method for calculation of a dependency claim, which I think is the signal to we're unlikely to uh, disagree with what the judge has done because there's a wide discretion there. Um, so they made that point. But also that there's no difference in principle between a loss of services of a domestic nature and loss of services which have a positive financial value to the family. So it's a matter for the court to use whatever material appears 
to fit the facts of the particular case to judge and establish the extent of the loss. And the judge in that case had come to a clear conclusion that the dependents had lost um, the deceased flair and business acumen. And, and by clear inference, it would have resulted in success, successful development of the portfolio. And that would have led to increases in both the capital and income value of the assets. And so it was clearly correct to conclude that they'd suffered a loss that was capable of being measured in monetary terms. Um, and the judge was entitled to use the cost of professional advice uh, to enable the dependents to manage the assets properly and effectively as the basis for that assessment. Now, of course, the difficulty with these kind of cases comes perhaps in that first sentence uh, of the Court of Appeals assessment, which is there is no prescribed method for calculation mm, of a dependency claim, um, and, and indeed for these particular claims. And as we said earlier, um, I think when we were uh, chatting about um, uh, the sort of paradigm of the weekly wage packet, as you, become, as you get into a more sort of sophisticated financial arena, um, the, 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 the framework of, of the statute is, is increasingly less effective or, or, or less um, suitable, uh, but the guidance is also missing. Um, and one of the things that um, it's important, again, to remember is overwhelmingly fatal accident act claims settle or resolve by negotiation. And so the kind of practical, real-world way in which these sorts of matters are dealt with um, don't often come before the court. And so when the court does get an opportunity, they tend to make quite broad brush pronouncements to try and provide guidance um, until the next case pops up. And uh, I think in, in, in real terms, part, one of the reasons for negotiations, obviously these are often very sensitive matters and it's very difficult. You're projecting entirely into the future to know what would have happened. But also because there are these um, uncertainties, therefore, uh, the, the potential gain and loss for both parties um, is, is sufficiently wider margin um, that resolution is often preferable under the managed um, circumstances of, of negotiation. Um, but I think it's uh, too simplistic to say that um, all you need to do is, is, is put somebody into the place of that wealth creator, so pay that salary or put that person in uh, to fill, plug that gap. And we'll, we'll look at another case in a minute which which considers that issue precisely. Um, but here, what, what, what we're looking at is the wider idea of professional advice um, to look at managing the assets. Um, so in that property a, a, a arena, um, what was he able to do? Um, the deceased was able to uh, look at opportunities, look at chances, take risks, make investments, um, and manage that portfolio um, in a growing way. Um, the fact also that the, the widow had sold a couple of properties to maintain her income um, was disregarded because, of course, um, that meant that her um, baseline, her baseline financial position um, hadn't changed, or indeed she'd managed to secure the same level of income as she had had when her um, husband was still alive. But that had only come at the expense of the property, and that had come at the expense of the very business that he would have been building up. Um, and so she had taken a sensible step to secure her financial position um, a, a, in a more certain way. Um, but the whole point of his flair would have been there would have been elements of risk taking um, and that property portfolio would have been able to grow and he would have been able to seize and take opportunities. Um, now, I suppose that the, the corollary of that could be that the riskier your business proposition, the greater prospect there is of failure. <laughs> and therefore, you know, it might not always grow. There might be crashes, there might be uh, moments of downturn, there might be um, uh, periods of contraction. And, and you know, we all know um, 
uh, of situations of, of of those that are that have taken significant business risks and it's completely blown up in their face. Um, but for that, you'd obviously be wanting to look at past performance as the best. As they say on stocks and shares, past performance is not always an indicator of future performance, but it is often the only thing that we have um, uh, or not a guarantee. But if you've got somebody who has a good track record of uh, of taking measured risks and, and growing with some flair um, and having some benefits, um, then that can provide a basis, a relatively um, strong basis, as in uh, the Cape distribution case uh, for saying this is how things would have progressed in the future. If you've got someone who's uh, if I may say so, more of a sort of have a go hero and they're kind of in the money and then they're bust and they go from boom or bust, then obviously um, there's going to be far less certainty in how you make that approach in the future. Yes. So uh, as we've seen under Cape and O'Clockland, they use the paying for someone to come in and replace the services and a similar approach was adopted in the case of Grant and the Secretary of State. Um, but a slightly different approach we'll see in action in the case of Welsh Ambulance Services and Williams. Um, so in that in that case, again, we have a deceased who had set up a successful family business and that employed all the members of the family. So the deceased, his wife and the two eldest children were all equal partners. The youngest child was just coming into the business and had begun light duties, um, subsequently became a partner after the deceased's death. Um, the business, in fact, was run successfully by the two eldest children after the death. And on that basis, the defendant had argued, well, there's no loss at all here because the family were at least as well off after the death as they had been before, as it continued to provide them with a similar or even a larger income than it had. Um, now, again, this is a case that went to the Court of Appeal um, and the, the trial judge had made findings that the business had grown due to the deceased's own energy and flair. In effect, he was a wealth creator. The, the wife had played no really significant role in the business. She'd provided modest services. Um, they were valued at £3,000 per annum. Um, but the court found that if the deceased had lived, he, he would have generated wealth for many years for the whole family. Uh, and the, the claimant and the children would have benefited from his efforts. And so uh, on the court's findings, they said that nothing could be more obvious than that she had lost a valuable dependency. Um, and although the children were grown up and no longer dependent in the traditional sense, they too had a very clear dependency on the deceased's management of the business because he generated large profits and that enabled the two elder children to receive profit shares that far exceeded the economic value of the roles they carried out. And they were dependent on the deceased to the extent um, that those profits exceeded the value of their labour. In addition, the youngest child also had a reasonable expectation that she would benefit from a share in those profits uh, that would greatly exceed the economic value of her contribution at some point in time as well. Um, so on that basis, the, the whole family had a clear financial dependency on the deceased and it was calculated by reference to the income that would have been generated for the business um, if he had lived. So they didn't um, in that case, calculate it on the basis of what would it cost to get someone in to replace him. But it's like, what would we have been earning as a family if he had still lived? Um, and the other important point to come out of that case was that the success of the business after the deceased death was, was irrelevant. It had to be disregarded um, because you calculate the dependency from the date of the death itself. And a dependent can't, by his or her own conduct, um, affect the value of the dependency in either direction at the time after the time of the death. So I think, in a way, what makes sense in that case is the fact that the business has continued and has expanded, 
due to the actions of the remaining children or the adult children, um, that benefit would still have been there Mm. and it would have just been even bigger um, or it might have even gone off into, I don't know, um, Williams Corporation Inc. because they all went off into different uh, little bits and pieces in terms of making their... Um, making their their success their own pathway and success within the family business Um, and and so again looking simply looking at a bottom line is not going to cut the mustard Um, you can't simply say there has been no financial loss because look the income has remained the same when that is due to activities of other people when they would have still been able to do those activities and there would have simply been a much much larger business Um, and again it's easy to see easier to see in this instance where you've got people contributing and earning the the principle remains the same but it's a bit harder to see when you've got the benefit of investments Um, but the calculation can never simply be uh, looking at the bottom line of the business no and it's one of the key refrains of all of these wealth creator cases that the court will make a distinction between investment return on a passive holding in a business, which would continue um, to yield income irrespective of the deceased capacity for work, um, and income that is the direct result of the deceased hard work and flair. And you have to keep that distinction in mind because obviously um, the first, the the investment income from a passive holding, not recoverable because that's been passed on, um, but anything deriving from the actual hard work and flair of the deceased is that's very clearly demonstrated in the case of Ricks and Paramount, which is actually relatively similar in terms of its facts to um, well, the Welsh Ambulances case. Again, it's um, a, a gentleman who died of mesothelioma having built up a successful business that, that employed his whole family. Um, in that case, um, the deceased and his wife each held 40% of the shares in the business. The two sons held 10%. Um, the wife didn't work for the business, but was a director And on paper, we can see that before his death, the deceased was taking actually a relatively modest salary and net dividend um, from the business, as was the wife um, and and the two sons as well. The wife inherited the deceased shareholding after his death and the sons took over the business and again ran it successfully. And it was, in fact, more profitable after his death. So again, in that case, the court adopted the approach of of accepting that a financial dependency should be calculated by reference to the claimant's share of of the income that she and the deceased would have enjoyed if he lived and continued to put his own entrepreneurial skills and flair into the business. And so in this case, you've got the situation of uh, saying that um, you can't simply look at Um, the amount of money being taken out of the business um, because of course um, that salary is often adapted or dealt with for tax purposes Um, and you've got all sorts of um, expenses or matters that are dealt with within the business Um, the salary and dividends are her own income um, but effectively you've got to have a sort of common sense approach to looking at uh, the value that was being provided by the deceased not not simply a matter of maths um, uh, clearly you've got a dependency on the husband um, clearly he's providing an income for the family that was due to his particular flair um, and you've got um, income generating assets um, that are independent of his work and labour um, which are not the same as a simple passive in- investment return which is the point you were making before Romilly um, you've just got to look at the reality of the situation um, and, and, and try there then to look at what has been lost 
Um, and again, you can't simply look at putting somebody into that slot, um, but you've got to look at what they would have generated, how it would have moved forward. Difficult as that will be, Absolutely. but that's essentially <laughs> the task that, that one has to attempt, I yeah. guess. It's, it's a realistic approach, isn't it? The court isn't blind to the fact that people make their arrangements in order to be tax efficient. Um, and that there are many family businesses in which family members are drawing salaries that they're, they're not, strictly speaking, earning. Yeah, um, and that there's and nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's the other no. thing. It's not, it's not condoning something that is in any way uh, a, a dodgy practice. And, of course, the court, if you've got people that are massaging figures um, uh, or are not declaring earnings or in some way they're doing something nefarious, then the court won't. Um, won't um, say, oh well, we all know lots of people act like that. Therefore, we'll look in that way. <laughs> they they have to work within um, within proper accounting practices. But obviously, we know that within business there are many such practices that um, enable uh, income to be spread within a family quite legitimately. Yes, that's the court looking more kindly on tax avoidance than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, financial but that's management. Matter. Financial <laughs> management. Really. It's worth noting just very briefly that in a very recent case of um, Head and Culver Heating Company Limited from, from this year, um, that the RICS approach to assessment um, of the income of a wealth creator it has been endorsed by the Court of Appeal. It's actually a lost years claim, not a fatal accidents claim, because um, the deceased was still alive when the first instance trial was heard, although in fact it died before it went to appeal. Um, but the, the court did specifically in, endorse the Ricks and Paramount and Welsh Ambulance Services approach, um, making that distinction between loss of earnings from work and loss of income from investments and the need to look at the reality of a situation. And, and if you have one one person who's really the driving force behind a company who's only paid a modest salary, that that doesn't necessarily reflect the value of work. And, and that isn't um, a realistic picture of income and you have to look at the reality of the situation well so, i think that's um pretty much dealt with our wealth creators really yeah. i mean there's uh, so at the other end of the scale yeah uh, oh yeah the way we'd sum it up yeah, absolutely <laughs> common sense mm. see what information can be found um access to books almost certainly going to need in the more complicated cases almost certainly going to need a forensic accountancy to help you not least because working out true worth of businesses when their family businesses can be uh, the devil's own task i think is the word i shall use there um and um and uh, it, it may well be that the that you know obviously if you're looking at it from a point of view of negotiation each party may well benefit from their own forensic accountant if you're looking at it from the point of view of the court um it may be that a single expert will be all that the court allows because what they want is uh, the task of financial uh, disentanglement um, and somebody to go through what are doubtless many, many box files of receipts um, in order to provide them with the raw material upon which to exercise judgment. Um, but those are tactical matters that can be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. Um, but these are difficult areas and and, and in, in some ways the best guidance that we can give at this stage is to say um, common sense approach, looking as far as you can at the reality of the situation um, and trying to look at what is lost, not simply uh, the, the, the plugging the gap of the salary that the deceased had, but a broader vision of what that loss may represent. Yes, of course, we should also mention at the other end of the financial scale that of course, not everybody um, has 
is in the fortunate position of being a wealth creator or even having a salary. Um, and so there can be circumstances where the deceased was on benefits and there may be a person living in a household with, with that deceased who was dependent on the benefits. So can you claim a dependency on benefits? Um, in short, yes, but you need to be clear that the loss arises out of the relationship of dependency, as we mentioned earlier. Um, one good illustration of that difference is the case of Cox and Hockenhull. Um, that involved um, a deceased who'd been physically disabled and her husband had given up his career to care for her full time and they were dependent on state benefits. The husband had been partly financially dependent on benefits that were paid to his wife, so a disability living allowance, but also on benefits that were paid to him, uh, a carer's allowance as her full-time carer. Uh, After the wife's death, of course, all of those payments stopped and he claimed the financial dependency. Um, The court held that the question that it has to be asked here is, has there actually been a loss? And if there has been a loss, the source of the income, whether it's a a state income or a private income, is really irrelevant. So financial dependency on benefits was potentially recoverable. However, with regard to the um, carer's allowance, that was not recoverable because that was provided to the claimant by the state in order for him to care for his wife. And if he'd been caring for any other person um, and that person had died, then, then he would have lost that income and it wouldn't have been recoverable. So that loss didn't arise out of the relationship. It fell outside the dependency. And the fact that the relationship of marriage existed was actually incidental. Um, so it couldn't be included as part of the dependency. On the other hand, the disability... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, on the other hand, the disability living allowance um, was contributed to the cost of running the, the family household and loss of that income did fall within the relationship of dependency and it would be proper to include that um, as part of, of his dependency. Uh, although I note that the, the, the apportionment was adjusted so that only 50% um, was, was recoverable, only 50% of the um, dependency was recoverable. Now, of course, the problem with claims such as this is, as we all know, in the real world, um, the uh, value of a claim uh, will often determine the amount of time and costs that can be uh, spent on evaluating that claim. And um, benefits um, are, are, are often sufficiently small that it's a difficult area uh, to anticipate um, or, or justify spending a great deal of costs on in trying to work out what that claim will be. Um, however needed it is. But the principle is broadly the same in that is it a uh, relationship dependent, is it a dependency on finance or is it something that represents um, a utility that was given either to the deceased or which was pegged onto the deceased. Um, Of course, as with all benefit claims, it's currently underway or undergoing um, a very, very difficult adjustment because of universal credit in which um, all benefits are lumped together and aren't divided as nicely as they currently are um, to make it apparent what relates to what. Um, So I think the um, issue of apportioning um, or recognising benefits um, upon which one may have a dependency um, as opposed to benefits per se is going to become ever harder. Um, um, although um, the very nature of the claims mean I have to say it's something that I don't often come across I don't know about you but as a, a, an actual distinct no, head of claim it's something mm. that doesn't come across very often No, but I think that really brings us pretty much round to the end of dependency as a whole um, and of course um, the, the financial dependency on earnings is of particular import um, uh, or indeed all, all the damages are, are affected by whether you have dependent children or not So finally, um, to wrap up both services and finances, um, one ought to consider the issue of apportionment. 
Um, and, and the broad situation is that almost all Fatal Accident Act claims, oddly enough, even though they happen outside the um, court's purview, end up having to be ratified by the court because if you have um, a person under a disability uh, or a, um, a, a, a child involved in the claim, and very often you will have children, those that are under 18, um, the court needs to provide its sanction uh, CPR 21 in order to make that a legally binding and enforceable decision. Um, won't go into all of those um, provisions at the moment, but essentially you'll end up having to justify the settlement that's made to the court. And one of the things that the court will want to know is the element of the damages that are set aside specifically for the benefit of the child. Now, the difficulty of this task or the apportionment task is that generally the bulk of damages, the bulk of the dependency on earnings and certainly the bulk of the dependency on services will be used up while the child is under 18. Effectively, it's to provide the care for them while they're in the family unit household before they set off on their own into the uh, the, to the wild world dependent on their own earnings. Um, and the, that is therefore the very antithesis of putting money away and apportioning it in a fund until the child is of age and can come into the money on their own. Uh, so even when you have a court-mediated agreement, you will tend to find that the bulk of the Fatal Accident Act damages will remain out with the apportionment or out with the court settlement because they have to remain with the caregiver um, or the home provider to spend the money effectively on bringing up the children. So the level of apportionment will tend to be relatively small uh, and what that level will be obviously depends on the valuation of the claim as a whole. Uh, but you will want to be able to uh, fill it out, uh, the cost that will need to be spent on bringing up the children, although you may well want to explain that to the court, um, and then look at essentially a lump sum or some sort of figure that will be tokenistic but will be delivered to the child at the age of 18 in order to give them some money of their own. Uh, generally, it is a matter of common sense how you do it, whether there is a particular sum or a particular item or a particular thing uh, that uh, it is wanted for. Uh, a simple thing can be if it is a claim that has had a level of award for the top or Regan awards, as in loss of particular affection, uh, that amount of money, which is often in the region of five to 10,000, can be set aside. Um, or in a default, something in the region of 12 to 20 to 25% is often set aside. Uh, but again, that depends on the value of the claim. It would be very unlikely um, for it to be more than, say, 20, 25,000 um, pounds. Uh, and it will tend to be tapered depending on the age of the child. So the younger the child, the slightly larger the sum will be. Um, and the uh, older the child, the smaller the sum will be. So I think that probably brings us to the end of what we were going to talk about today. Do you think we've uh, covered off most of what we wanted to say, Romilly? I think we have. Sorry, oh, I was all... just smirking to myself because you were reminding me of having met a pair of brothers many years ago on a, on a family holiday and they'd been involved in a road traffic accident. And one of the brothers <laughs> said to me, yeah, it was great. He broke his arm. He got £15,000 when he's older. I got a lollipop. <laughs> <laughs> well, never let it be said that damages <laughs> are always easy to explain to a client. Mm. Um, but we hope that um, we have set out some of the issues that need to be borne in mind when calculating dependency claims. Yes. Um, and we hope that you have gained some benefit from listening, if not a little enjoyment. So thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. 
At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. Mm-hmm.